0: Shall be for Christ alone. You may be seated. And then I like in that third stanza, particularly of that song, that Christ became our propitiation. Sometimes in our hymns and in our songs, we don't sing of true doctrine. And that phrase propitiation is a wonderful truth. It literally has a double meaning in it in the biblical context. That is that our sins are removed, they're expiated, is the old word, and then instead of that expiated or removed sin, there is propitiated or implied, imputed righteousness to us. It's a wonderful, wonderful word, and most of us, when we sing it, go, what's that mean? There you go, that was free. Ephesians chapter 6 this morning is where we are. Ephesians chapter number 6. We'll read the first four verses. We're looking at relationships. Two weeks ago, we looked at the marital relationship. Last week, we looked at roles and that of a father. And I told you, if I was preaching different homes as a book, I would preach them with the relationships, the responsibilities, and the roles all in their proper order. But they're not because... Somebody decided to put Mother's Day and Father's Day so far apart on the calendar, and so as a pastor, I have to do my due diligence and make sure I present to you the truth at the appropriate time. And so today, we're looking back at relationships, and instead of the marital relationship, we're looking at the parental relationship. And some of you just said, well, I don't have kids, or my kids are grown and gone. Trust me, you'll want to listen to this earnestly, because you have a part to play in a way in which you can help those who are raising children still in the home. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Father, help us this morning as we turn our attention to the word of God, and as we look at parental relationship it is to be between a father and a mother and the children that you have blessed in homes. I pray that you will help us today to guard our hearts, <coughs> guard our minds. May we bring every thought into captivity and so understand the word of truth and then take that truth and apply it every day in our lives. Bless us, I pray in this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. The little song that all kids learn is this. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, all our sins. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Today we live in a culture where children are viewed as a pariah or a problem. Thank goodness, on this June 26th, I should say, of 2022, I can say that a national abortion on demand is no longer the law of our land. (laughs) Now it is a states' rights issue. I'm glad to live in a state that has made right that issue don't ever believe the lie that says it is a woman's rights issue it is a life issue plain and simple now we of the biblical persuasion are called barbaric because we want to make a woman carrying a child to full term we want to make them do that and yes, I'm going to use some hard language in this opening this morning even if she has been raped. The answer to that from a biblical perspective is yes. The lie is that those are com- the, the lie, excuse me, is that those are common occurrences that they happen every day. Last year, less than half of 1% of all abortions were due to rape and incest. The holy grail of arguing points for the pro-baby-murdering lobby. There are a few real reasons that these bloodthirsty demoniacs want abortion. Oh, yeah. yes. One – oh, not yet, Randy. We'll come back to that, I promise you. Sorry. One, they are demoniacs. Yes. You say, all of them? No, 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 no. But understand, there are many people, especially in certain segments of our society – that are duped into believing the lie, but those that are promoting it, pushing and pulling for it. Those are the ones that are peddling the lie from the devil himself. If you don't believe me, listen to an article. Actually, listen to the social media post of the satanic temple on Friday. Now you say, Patrick, you go and read the satanic Temple's website every Friday. I generally try not to. Some of you are saying, that's a thing? And the answer is yes, it is. Here's what they posted on Friday. And by the way, don't get lost in this. Just think of 2 Corinthians, where the Bible calls the devil an angel of light. That's how he appears. Here's what they posted on Friday, immediately after the decision by the Supreme Court. It says, the satanic temple is the leading beacon of light in the battle for abortion access. With Roe versus Wade overturned. A religious exemption will be the only available challenge to many restrictions to access. They are positioning themselves yes. right. as the hope for those that want to murder children. Yep. You ever wonder which side you're on? If you're on the right or the wrong side, there it is. Right. Right. Dr. Susan Barry, in a recent article, wrote this. She said, abortion industry giant Planned Parenthood has been working with the Satanic Temple to fight state abortion restrictions. In April of 2019, the Satanic Temple also announced that the IRS had recognized it as a church with tax-exempt status. We know the avenue through which those who would like to seek the murdering of an innocent child, a defenseless child's life, will now travel. So number one— Demoniacs. Number two, I would submit to you the lie that we need to see through is that, in fact, they hate life. That's just bottom line. They hate their life, they hate your life, and they hate the life of the baby. No one can murder a child and not hate life. Here's a third truth, third reason why they want abortion. They want sex without consequences. There was actually a pro-baby-killing pundit who actually said that women should start being careful who they have sex with. And that they should withhold sex from men due to this decision until they're married. And as a pastor, I said, I finally agree with them. (laughs) (laughs) And you notice, I I know it's funny, it is ironic. But it's not. Because we've been told for so long that our prudish ways of abstinence are not in fact. Doable, And now all of a sudden they're doable. And the answer is the Bible is always true. Amen. Amen. The Bible's always right. Amen. The Bible is always accurate. By the way, it is within this consequence of sex that I would at least as a pastor give you some thinking knowledge. Because it's going to be a topic of discussion for a while. And as Christians, you need to understand. It. You say, Pastor, how does this apply to parenting? We're going to get to that in the fifth reason. And that will open up our message this morning. But to the cases of rape, I would ask, why should the child die for the man's violence in a perverted act? Yeah. By the way, Deuteronomy twenty-two and verse twenty-five, the Mosaic law stipulated that a rapist was to be killed by stoning. Right. You want to know what my opinion is? We go back to that. Yes, yeah. 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 amen. You stone people. You are archaic. I'm not saying we have to do all of the law, but when we stop punishing by way of the law. People continue to do things. Let me tell you something. You would not find the wildest pervert lurking in a park if he knew that caught and proven to be him, he would die for it. He wouldn't do it. Unless he hated his life. And the problem is we've now unpunished sin for so long in this country, there's no seeming way back from it. And the answer is no, you just start punishing sin again. Though the Mosaic Law was for the nation of Israel during the time of Moses, the principle is clear. Rape in the eyes of God and under the law led to the most extreme punishment possible. So we must ask ourselves, why do so many go unpunished? Why is the punishment so light? It's probably because many of them are folks of influence and power. There would be a lot less rapist if the death penalty was the punishment. The answer, by the way, is not kill the innocent. It is require the life of the guilty. That's the biblical principle all the way through. And then it would be to support the life of the victim as well. Fewer than 1% of all abortions. I think this is where I have the statistics there, Randy. Sorry about that, pal. Fewer than 1% of all abortions, according to the Guttmacher Institute, Take place because there's been a rape or incest involved to create the pregnancy. Up to 85% of women who become pregnant through rape or incest choose to have their children. About 32,000 pregnancies result from uh, sexual assault or rape every year in the United States. This statistic ran in the USA Today on Friday... And these are the reasons to the Guttmacher Institute that they gave, women gave. They can give multiple answers. That's why the statistics go far above 100%. But these are the reasons. Having a baby would dramatically change my life. I can't afford a baby right now. I don't want to be a single mother or have problems in the current relationship, so this child is not what I want. I've already completed my childbearing years. I'm done. I'm tapped out. 1% would claim that they are a victim of don't believe the lie. Right. A fourth is that they are narcissists. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Randy. You can take this stat down now because when you leave it out there, I just want to keep reading. <laughs> so one, the reason that we have abortion is they are demoniacs. Two, they hate life. Three, they want sex without consequences. Four, they're narcissists. They believe the world exists to only make them happy. I I love this quote from Thomas Sowell. Now, if you know Thomas Sowell, he's an economist, so it doesn't necessarily apply to the abortion situation, but it does apply to every situation as you listen to the quote. Thomas Sowell said this of the people that oppose conservatism and biblical thought in in the world. He says it is usually futile to try to talk facts and analysis to people who are enjoying a sense of moral superiority. Well, oh, that's wonderful. Because that's true. Number five reason is what we're going to talk about today, and that is this they don't know or how to handle, or they don't want to handle, the responsibility of raising a child on their own. The chart and the statistics that we saw proved that to be the overwhelming response from the over, overwhelming majority. Now, I'm going to be careful this morning as well. The message isn't about abortion. That is the introduction. I will say this. There are folks that are likely, within the sound of my voice this morning, who have had to or have chosen to, at a previous point in their life, had an abortion. Jessica and I, as a married couple, have have counseled with folks in our church family who have, in their past, before the Lord or after their salvation, because of confusion and because of corruption because of what— The the point that I'm making this morning is not, oh, you terrible sinner. The point is is that we cannot believe the lie anymore. To be put into some impossible circumstances like some women are is a difficult thing. I understand that as a pastor. And there is hope for any choice that we've made in our life. Because there's help from the word of God. But it is in this final reasoning that I bring forward today's message on parental relationships within a different home. Having and raising children is a daunting yet noble task. The Bible has much to say on raising kids, and Paul to the Ephesian church says for us this morning that there are three matters that matter that must be part of your thinking in bringing up successful children who serve the Lord. So this morning we begin in our notes with there is the matter of expectation. In verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 6, we find that Paul gives to us the expectation. As a parent, I need to understand what I'm expected to do and what is expected of my children, if God has so blessed my home with that. Paul, in these first three verses, affirms an Old Testament law in the New Testament age. What he gives to us essentially in verses 1 and 2 is a repeating of what Deuteronomy 6 says that every father and every child should be engaged in doing. And that is obedience through honoring their parents. So there's two aspects that we must understand this morning. In verse number 1, we see the expectation of right actions. The expectation of right actions. Obedience, letter A. Your kids should obey you. Yeah. All three of you agree with that. <laughs> Do you agree? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. None of the kids are saying amen here. <laughs> They're saying oh man instead of amen. The matter of expectations begins with your kids engaged in these right things action or righteousness we might say your kids should obey you i know that sounds shocking and the psychologists with their psycho babbling will prattle on about how we need to see the emotional whole of the child satisfied but i'm telling you from the creator's view their whole self and being is best served when they are taught obedience to their parents is their chief responsibility Since the 1950s and 1960s, when we began, we began believing the Dr. fox of the world, and no, I don't mean the one that says live long and prosper, though at the end of verse number three, there is an element, if we follow the word of God, that we can live long and prosper. I just do that because some of you can't do that, right? It's a sign of intelligence that you can do that. Some of you are going to try all church service now. <laughs> Expectation is that of right actions. And so we find the pseudo psychology of Freud has come upon us. The Dr. Fox and the parenting gurus of paganism and heathenism have come upon us. And I ask the question how much better behaved has society become? And the answer is watch the news. Is America trending up or down in societal behavior? The answer is obvious. By removing the implicit design element of authority and obedience to that authority, we have created several generations of impetuous monsters. <laughs> Some of you are saying, are you just talking to the kids that are in here this morning? I'm talking actually to my generation. Because as it was essentially in the 1970s, that everybody started frog stepping to this ideology that has ruined our country. And make no mistake, it is both fascist and communist on two hands. Man, yeah. man. Because if you don't do what the state says in raising your children, CPS is called. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's fascist in one sense, and it's communal, communistic in another. They're the only ones that have figured out how to take those two ideas and put them together. Yeah. I'll save that Lecture for next Sunday morning on our 4th of July Sunday. We have on display in our modern world children who have grown up never being taught that there is legitimate authority over them, and thus they make themselves the authority. By the way, parents, if you do not become the authority in your kid's life, they become the authority. By the way, they become the authority not only in their life, but in your life too. And they will make your life miserable. Paul warns us that society without God, a knowledge of God, a respect for God, without obedience to God, instilled by parents, looks like this in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. He says that even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. The word convenient there means appropriate. You look out across the land today and you see a lot of inappropriateness going on. It goes on in verse 29 saying being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication. That word fornication is pornea. It means any kind of sexual desire. Wickedness, covetousness, covetousness, maliciousness. That means to do harm physically to another. Full of envy, murder, debate. That is quarreling over the silliest little things. Deceit, malignity. That is mischief. the church often without understanding covenant breakers without natural affection excuse me implacable it means they cannot be pacified in any way nothing makes them happy that's the world we live in today unmerciful who knowing the judgment of God in other words they knew better That they which commit such things are worthy of death. That's what they do, was the right prescription for all of those behaviors. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Did <laughs> you see what that guy did? Oh, that's a condemning passage. Right actions. Those are on your TV and news or your social media feed every day. It is a sign of the end times, according to Paul in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 2, but it is also a sign of parental collapse in a society. Don't be a part of it, mom and dad. The second thing in your notes there, letter B, is right attitudes. Right attitudes. They have right actions and they have right attitudes. Parental rule is the first circle of authority in God's moral government of this world. It is the first, most important authority that a child should know. And so it's no mistake that the devil himself has come directly after homes, in particular marriages in the homes and the parenting in the home. It is in the home that children are first confronted with the fact of authority and learn their first lessons in honor and obedience. It goes back to the times of taking their food off of their tray when they're just infants sitting there. There's an understanding that, no, we don't keep throwing the bottle on the floor. Oh, I remember all three of our boys, when they would take the bottle, and they would get this this, devious little... Now, I'm going to ask an honest question. How many of us just go, okay don't do that okay don't do that okay don't do that at some point there needs to be actual correction in the attitudinal approach to that the action is an outflow of the attitude what we do is how we thought the word honor in verse number two here in ephesians chapter six means reverence it has this meaning it, has, it means to hold with value or particular value. So it's saying children are to have a particular or hold a particular value or special value on their moms and their dads, their position, and their person. Let me talk to the kids in here this morning, from teenagers on down. How much do you value the parents that God has given to you? Well, I mean, mine are okay, but my dad's kind of a dummy sometimes. Does that special value? Is that honor and reverence? Well, you know, my mom, she complains a lot, and I have to hear a lot of stuff on the way home in the van, on the way in the car. I, I bet that pastor and Miss Jessica's car is not like that. Enjoy your family while we enjoy ours. To honor means you have a special value placed upon those whom God has given to you as authorities in your life. Young people, you could obey your parents by dragging the trash can to the curb, mumbling and complaining all the way there. I know. I would do it from time and again when I was a kid. We lived on a pipe stand on Abington Court. You had to take the trash can out and roll it all the way down to the cul de sac to where they would pick up the trash. And it wasn't super far, but it wasn't super close on a rainy days. And there were a lot of days. My dad's on my dad's place. don't take the trash out by the I'm not getting so good one here. Don't do care I get pneumonia. Walk back in. I did it, Dad. On rare occasions, my dad would say, Oh, I forgot to put something in it. Bring it back up to me. He <laughs> would. It's not just that we act in the right way, but young people, that you have the right attitude. That matters to God. Yeah, that's right. Your actions might be right, but your attitudes are all wrong. What is right before God is when both actions and attitudes are correct. Parents, by the way, you cannot teach your kids to honor you. Did you know that? Johnny, I want you to value me. Good luck. Kind of like saying you're humble. (laughs) You must earn that honor. You say, well, uh, listen, it's earned from the day they come into the home. They have no true cognitive ability. They can eat and mess their diaper and sleep, and that's all they can do. But it's from that day on, the investment in their lives and the continual investment where the Coffers of honor are built up, if you will. You do not have the privilege, after 12 years of being a terrible parent, of then turning to them at age 13 and saying, Hey, you need to obey and honor me. Ooh, good luck. sir Children honor that which has the most value and worth in their life. And far too many are honoring movie stars and athletes. Far too many are honoring that which is popular, or what, that which pulls them through this life. And far too many parents are actually engaged in their kid's life where they've built up the credibility and the honor. Now, God commands it here, but it certainly is easier for your child to value you if you are valuable to them. It's a choice. Consistency makes that choice an easier one for their kids. Honoring your parents most often does not come until after you've left home, by the way. I've taught this before when I preached on this these two particular verses in one message, and I talked about the fact that obedience is what happens until 18. Honor usually is demonstrated in what happens after age 18. Usually. Once the kids leave the home, then you can really see which ones of those children honor their parents because their parents have invested in them and they see the worth of their loved one. It is then as parents that we will see the rewards for years and sometimes years of commitment to training a child in the way that he or she should go. In the present, there are things you can do to correct bad attitudes in the early years. We have found in our home that we try to find Bible verses that address the emotional or attitudinal opposition that our child has to authority at that moment. Giving Bible passages to your kids sets absolute truth before their decision-making ability. In other words, as they're critically learning to think, and kids do that. That's our objective as parents is to raise them to be critical thinkers in this world. But as they learn to think critically, they will realize mom and dad keep setting absolute truth in front of me. I know that my boys probably think Jessica has a proverb for everything, and she does. There's sometimes that preacher dad even has to go. Oh, there, okay, then. And then I take that when I have to do the correction with the boys. Giving Bible passages sets absolute truth before their decision-making. They don't need arbitrary tales from your childhood. Those might be interesting. One time when I was a boy, well, they're not you, and they weren't there. Now, a lot of parenting is just on factual, I was going to say fictional, but factual, some are fictional. Factual tales, right? Fictional. Fictional tales from the past. They don't need an arbitrary tale from you. They need absolute truth from you. That's what changes their life. Mm -hmm. What your kids need to make informed choices of attitude, the internal things of the heart, Is absolute truth from God's word. Proverbs and Psalms are full of passages that can help in literally any attitudinal struggle against authority, be it divine authority, parental authority, scholastic authority, or (laughs) governmental authority. While you cannot make them honor you, you can make honoring you easier by correcting, cautioning, and then crafting a biblically right attitude to the wrong decisions that they're being corrected for. changes how they look towards authority and so we find in these first two verses right actions and right attitudes are the expectation and we find in verse number three what we're going to look at in the transition and that is this these are expectations for parents and children right these are the expectations they're a matter of them but god gives you three rewards and i put them in your notes you don't even have to fill them in i didn't want you to miss them they're that important even though they're just transitional thoughts in the message this morning God gives you three rewards for meeting the expectations, both as parents and children. He said, it is beneficial, that's verse 3, it may be well with thee. It is bountiful, or full, in the life that is lived, that's the end of verse 3, that thou mayest live long on the earth. And if you would look over, and we won't just yet this morning, in Colossians chapter 3, and in verse 20, the end of that verse says, it is blessed. So, if you will follow these and hold to these expectations... It is beneficial, it is bountiful, and it is blessed for you. It says there, it is well-pleasing to the Lord. When God is pleased, you will be blessed. Amen. So the question is, how serious do we as parents take these expectations? Can I tell you something? Your kids will take them as seriously as you do. The second matter is the matter of provocation. The first matter is expectation. The second matter that we must understand in good parenting is the matter of provocation. Provocation is not necessarily a bad thing. We are to provoke one another to love and good works as we come together in collective worship according to Hebrews chapter 10. This word provocation, however, is slightly different. It is attached to a negative reaction. And so we understand that the provocation here is not something affirming or positive that we're provoking each other to, but rather we are agitating, we are exasperating those that are around us, and in particular our children. We find letter A, this matter of provocation, comes first with consistent living. How do we not provoke them to wrath and anger? How do we provoke them, rather, to love and good works? How do we provoke them to righteousness? It is through consistent living. We could say, even more clearly, inconsistent living. What we want to have is consistent living. Chapter 6 and verse 4, the first part of the verse says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. The word wrath is a compound Greek word, para, which means to move towards, and orgizo, which means to make angry or to irritate. In other words, don't move your children towards irritation or anger. That's what the word... Wrath, your means Don't promote that into their lives. Thus we derive that parents are to avoid driving their children to the point of irritation and agitation with them and with God. Angry irritation comes because kids see one thing and hear another. Yeah. Added to the fact that they never have the why explained to them for certain processes of life. In other words, a great many Christian kids become irritated at God, the church, and their parents' fuddy-duddy old thinking because dad and mom don't practice what they preach on a day-to-day basis. And if they do preach at all, what they preach is a mumbo-jumbo mashup of words spouted some offhandedly by the pastor, but not lived or understood by the parent at all. And that inconsistent living is a provocation to anger. It is consistent biblical living that will remove and resolve any irritations that your children have towards biblical convictions and standards of holiness. The problem is, most parents aren't willing to buy in on it. In my home, my boys have never been told, you better act this way because dad's a pastor. It doesn't matter that their dad's a pastor. I could be a janitor. could be a street sweep It doesn't matter what my profession is it doesn't matter what my ministry or my calling is they should be doing or living a right way because that is the expectation of god in their lives because it's the expectation of god in my life in our home our boards are told that this is what the bible says about this action or this attitude this is how mom and i have chosen to live in relation to that truth revealed to us it is proven for us as a couple and as individuals to be proven to be the best thing for our holiness and our personal happiness, and we want you to live this way too. You say, Pastor, that sounds an awful lot like you're giving them the choice. Friend, they have it. What it's time, really high time for most Christian homes to do is to wake up to the fact that we need to be molding lives rather than manipulating them. By the way, we also add to our kids, we aren't perfect. We tell our kids, if you see us sin or fail, please ask us why we did. (gasps) They can't ask you why you sinned, Dad. Sure they can. Because if I don't answer the why I sinned with, I'm selfish and I I chose in that moment to please myself, then my kids will grow up thinking I'm a liar. By the way, when we sin and fail, and we have, we ask our kids to forgive us. You don't need to ask your kid to forgive you. If you don't believe you need to ask your children to forgive you, ask them first to forgive you of that idea. And then move beyond. Pastor, that seems awful hard. I'd rather just yell at my kids to do right while I don't want to. Yeah, I know. Welcome to the life. Parenting is hard. Paul says, provoke not your children to wrath. Your inconsistent living will provoke them to wrath. Consistent living will provoke them to love Jesus Christ as you, through your consistent life, are showing that you love Jesus Christ. The second thing, letter B, we find is considerate leading. I will have you turn back, or say back, forward to Colossians chapter 3, I know the Bible. Colossians 3 and verse 21. This is often called a companion passage to the Ephesians 6 or Ephesians. And there's a lot of similarities in chapter 3 of Colossians with chapters 5 and 6 of Ephesians. It's not the same letter rehashed or rehearsed. It is Paul writing to two different churches that we're having the same similar issue. That's hopeful for us. That means the same problems that existed in those churches exist in this church, so we're not terrible people. Okay? But in verse number 21, he says it slightly differently under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it still has the word provoke, the provocation aspect. He says in verse 21, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger. Notice, lest they be what? Mysterious. Uh, literally my leadership as a father, as a husband, my wife's leadership in the role of a nurturing help me in her position that God has given to her with those children that both of us in inconsistencies can lead our children all to a life hating God and wanting nothing to do with Him. But considerate leading means I am thinking always about the choices and the decisions that I make that they would be encouraging to my children rather than discouraging. The word considerate means that you are careful not to cause inconvenient hurts to others. I'm giving deference, consideration to another. Parents, are you mindful of how you're leading your home? Are you mindful of where you're leading your home? It's an important question to ask. It's the father's role to be a dad, not a dictator. Understand that this morning, men. Your job is not to waltz into the kitchen one random Saturday morning while everyone's around the table and say, I'm the boss, listen to me. They probably won't if that's the way you approach life. Leadership is servanthood first. As you serve your family they will understand dad's position and his responsibility to almighty God I gotta tell you dads as a dad you have to say the word no I preached another message years ago on vitamin N it was a video I watched from John Rosemont, and I'll talk about him in just a moment, a book that he wrote is wonderful, and it was a wonderful little five-minute video on vitamin N, and the N stands for no. (laughs) Tell your kids no. Just because at times dad has to say no and then enforce that no does not mean he has to be nasty. I get it. When you have one, or two, or three, or four, or five, or six, or seven, or eight kids in your house, or more if God's so blessed, your nerves can run out real quick. But you're the leader. If the leader falls, everyone falls. Children need to be treated with the same courtesy that's shown to adults, to real people, because guess what they are? They're little people. They're real people. Nobody likes being bossed or bullied. The word for discouraged here means to be disheartened or have their spirit broken. Biblically, we are to break the will of our child to disobey God. But we are not to break their spirit to want to love God you do have to step in when their will is set against biblical authority and is in the defiant mode but we have to be careful not to break their desire to know God and to love you a constant nagging of children moms can produce two opposite reactions as well one, they can become broken in their spirit, or the opposite often happens, they become belligerent in their spirit. I told you a hundred times, no, 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 no. Be careful. If you've told them a hundred times, you've told them a hundred times for a reason. Because you've never enforced no in the proper way of discipline and punishment. Right. Parental responsibility involves setting standards, defining what punishment is, then enforcing the Discipline. The process also is always evolving with the growth, the maturity, and the mind of your young person. Thus, leaving your home must be done intelligently, it must be done reasonably, and it must be done carefully in a loving way. The worst result in parenting is to produce a child who is discouraged with God, distrusting of his work, the church, and dissatisfied with their lot and family in this life. If you're not careful, parents, without being a considerate leader, you will produce all three of your child like that. Being a parent involves an awesome responsibility because it is the ultimate accountability to Almighty God. Paul says there is the matter of expectation, there is the matter of provocation, and finally there is the matter of admonition. Admonition. The admonition is from God to parents on how to both raise and release your children out into their own life. He tells us to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Admonition is an act or action of giving authority, counsel, or warning to another. You can read these last two this way, the nurture of the Lord and the admonition of the Lord. Both of them are of the Lord. So we begin, A with discipline or the nurture in raising them. Every child must have parents dedicated to the task of raising them in an orderly, structured, disciplined home. Chaos is not the recipe for success. We're barely holding it together, preacher. Well, good luck. You can do better than that. I'm going to put two books on the board for you. Dr. James Dobson, or as my wife likes to call him, Dr. Dobson. She loves Dr. Dobson and she has made me a believer. I, I liked James Dobson before we got married, but after marrying Jessica, she loves Dr. Dobson. And his book that is on the left-hand side, The New Dare to Discipline, is a wonderful resource for every parent. I would highly recommend every parent, especially if you have children under the age of eight, that you go out and buy it and not sit it on the bookshelf. It will do you absolutely no good. It's like the Bible. If you sit on the bookshelf, you have a Bible in the bookshelf. You don't have a Bible in your life. And so what he does is he takes biblical principles and applies them to the process of raising children, nurturing them, disciplining them in the things of life. The second book on the right is John Rosemond's Parenting by the Book. He's wonderful as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, he's got a multitude of books. I think his website is parentingguru.com. I hope that's right. If not, you're going to go to some other website. But the point is, uh, you look up John Rosemond, and I think it's the Parenting Guru or something like that, he does a wonderful job. In taking on a biblical approach, he has another book called uh, – Parent, besides parenting by the book, he's calling uh, – oh, She's going to mouth them to me. I, I can't remember. It's a good one. Sorry, I did a pastoral phone call. I spoke before I thought. <clears throat> but they're good books, good authors. Dare to Discipline has been a staple in our home. It was one that we read early in our marriage, even before the Lord gave us children so we knew how to raise those children. To nurture means that you tend carefully to a thing. That's what the word nurture means there in Ephesians chapter 6. You pay attention to what makes it grow. You pay attention to what stunts its growth. You set guidelines. You set schedules. You set boundaries. When those guidelines, those schedules or boundaries are broken or ignored, there is a corrective measure applied. The correcting process is not vindictive. It's not retributive. It is not something that we do in anger or malice. It is loving correction. Hebrews chapter 12 has a wonderful picture of this, beginning in verse number 5. It says this, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son. Randy, I think we have, do we have this verse, Hebrews 12? Uh, we he got at it in like Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 12. It's that important. I want you to see it and I want you to mark it. They gave me the disappointed pastor, you didn't put it in. He says in chapter 12 and in verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he, here's how God the Father and God in his parental role towards his children addresses us. He chasteneth, that means to castigate with words. That's what chasteneth, He means to castigate with words. And he scourge It means, the word scourge it means to flog. Not to blog, but to flog. That means to strike. <gasps> oh, I knew he would get there. Oh, no. Yes, I will deal with the seat of, ins- or what is it? The rod of correction meets the seat of instruction. We'll deal with that in just a moment. He scourges every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? In other words, if you love your kids, you're going to correct them. Because God loves his kids and he corrects them. But if ye be without chastisement, in other words, if there is no correction, whereof whereof all are partakers, in other words, all of us have been corrected by the Lord, then are ye bastards. That is a strong word. ...and not sons. It means you are illegitimately born. You don't belong. Parents, if you would look at correction of your children that way, if I will not correct them from their wrong, it's like I'm saying to them, I don't even care about you! I don't want you! Well, I I thought correction had the opposite effect, that when I corrected them, they didn't think I loved them. No, by never correcting them, by never setting guidelines or holding them to standards... You are saying to them by acting that way, I don't want to. It's not worth my trouble. Yeah. Biblically, they are bastards in your mind. God disciplines those who are His because He loves them and wants them to represent Him and themselves well in this world. In verse number 9, where we are here in Hebrews 12, the passage turns from the spiritual to the practical. Now, there's still spiritual context, and we'll deal with it, but it's very practical in the realm of disciplining specifically. He says, furthermore, we have had fathers of our own flesh which corrected us. In other words, we had parents that taught us obedience, and we gave them reverence or honor. Hey, there are those two things linked again, obedience and honor. Because they corrected us and made us obey, we valued them highly in our lives. It's the opposite of what the pseudo-psychologists tell us today. (coughs) Shall we not much rather be in subjection or surrender unto the Father of spirits and live? Remember what the rewards of meeting those expectations of obedience and honor are? Beneficial, bountiful, and blessed living. He said, look, spiritually we understand this principle. If we obey and honor God, then we're going to have a spiritual healthiness to us. Parents have a reason in disciplining and correcting just as God does, according to verse number 10. Keep reading with me. He says, for they verily, for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he, God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. That phrase, after their own pleasure, in verse 10, means for their good name's sake. Why is it that my father disciplined Kyle Fannin? Because I was a Fannin. I belong to him. He was my earthly father. And he would say often, and my boys hear it often for me as well, when they go out into the public space to do anything, remember three things. You got three names. You're a Christian. You're a Fanon, And you are a Drew, Nate, or a Luke. And all three of those good names are on the line based upon your behavior when you go. Well, that's a lot of pressure on your kids, yes. And they fail like their father failed. But they understand when they go out there the discipline of a godly life and a godly man. They understand what they're supposed to be doing. More parents ought to teach their kids the responsibility and the self-discipline that is necessary. Finally, every parent can amen, verse number 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. (laughs) Yay, I get to spank you. Yay, I get to sit you in the corner. Yay, you're in a timeout. Yay, you're losing privileges. Yay, none of it's joyous. And that's the problem. Most parents just want to be their pal with their kid instead of their Uh, parents. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth what? The peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. I love that word, exercise. It means they are put through the paces. Yes, moms and dads, you must hold the line of discipline. Your kids aren't. That's why you're their parent. That's why they're your child. The second and final thing is direction and releasing. Nurture is the process of disciplining them making sure they understand how life works and how they are to work in life but secondly we find we bring them up in the admonition of the lord parents if you have not taught your kids the value of the bible the importance of its place in their daily lives, then you are setting them up for failure yeah but pastor there isn't time to have family devotions and you can't come complain to me when your kids are a shipwreck in the spiritual wasteland You don't take time, dads, to sit down with your kids and read the Bible. Then make time. It is your responsibility to raise them in the admonition of the Lord. That is the direction that God would have them go. There isn't a church around that can help your adult child correct course if you never gave them directions for how to navigate this life. It's just not possible. That's on you, Dad. That's on you, Mom. Your parental relationship culminates, as it culminates, I should say, you joyfully watch your child step out into life, ready to make right choices from the Word of God. Because you've invested in them for the 18 years, 17 years, 20 years, 26 years that they've been in your house. However long home, they're in your house. And be careful, there's some that might still be at home, right? if you never open the Bible with them and show them how to make good choices, as they head out into life, get ready to wear out your knees. Asking God to forgive you and for God to work miraculously in your kid's life. By the way, we ask God for a miracle because in the early formative days, we did not do the methodical. Right. <clears throat> oh God, you'll just fix all my mistakes. And God said, I won't be able to fix because they have free will. They have choice. Giving direction from the Bible is the parents' chief responsibility in the pre- and teen years. Filling in the whys, the whats, the hows, the winds of life. Direction might be explaining that families, even good families in a church, do things differently than our home does. That's okay. They're good Christians and we're good Christians. How can that be? Christian might be explaining why you have rules that you have that other homes don't have. It might def- be defining not so much what is right and wrong, but what is good, what is better, and what is best. A lot of Christian kids end up finishing their uh, raising years, and they are released out of life by their parents, and they go out and make good choices. You say, well, Pastor, that's what I'm striving for. My kids make good choices. Every parent, biblically, ought to want their kids to make the best choices, biblically. Understanding that you're their flesh and they are your flesh and blood, and that you've never made perfect choices. They're going to make sometimes bad choices, good choices, better choices, and sometimes, hopefully more often than not, best choices, according to the Word of God. So Paul gives us three matters that should matter to every parent. In closing, we understand the matter of expectation. It is actions and attitudes. The matter of provocation is consistent living and considerate leading. The matter of admonition is disciplining and raising them and direction and releasing them. If God has blessed your home with children, and notice, as I said two weeks ago, a home is a husband and a wife. The great lie that we believe is that the home only has to have children when it can be called a home. A home is a husband and wife. But if God has blessed your home with children, and every child conceived is a blessing, then by all means, do your part in being the parent God intends for you to be. Be the kind of parent that your children need you to be, and be the kind of parent that your community benefits from you being. If we could get 10,000 Bible-believing homes to actually practice biblical parenting, in two generations, this country would be different. You say, listen, if God could save Israel with 300, he could take 10,000 homes easily. We have 120 in our church. We only need another 1,000 churches to do like us. We don't need a lot. The point is, is do it. The question is, are you going to do it? Father, help us, I pray, as we close our today. Help us to know and to understand what is biblical.